This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Eric Berry. Hey there. Dave Kimura. Hey, everybody. David Richards. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have two special guests. We have Nell Shamrell Harrington. That's it. Greetings from Seattle. And Nathan Harvey. Hi, everyone. Uh, Now, both of you work at Chef. Do you want to give a little bit more of an introduction than that, though? Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. I'm Nell Shamrell Harrington. I'm a senior uh, dev engineer at Chef. I'm also the CTO of Operation Code, which is a nonprofit dedicated to teaching coding skills to uh, military veterans who are transitioning uh, to, oh, well, thank you for the applause, who are transitioning to civilian life. Uh, If you are a veteran or want to support veterans, please check us out at operationcode.org. And it's, I think this is my third episode of Ruby Rogue, so it's fantastic to be back. Yeah, we like having you back. Nathan, how about you? Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Nathan Harvey. Um, My dad misspelled my name, so it's N-A-T-H-E-N. He wanted to make sure that all of his children were able to globally, uniquely identify themselves when we grew up, and so (laughs) we win. Uh, But uh, a little bit more about me. Uh, I do work at Chef. I'm the VP of community there. Um, I'm also uh, the co-host of another podcast along with now called The Food Fight Show, which is a podcast that's all about, well, it's it's the podcast where DevOps chefs do battle. So that's me. Nice. Hand-to-hand battle. That's right. We throw uh, vegetables and mashed potatoes at our screens while we have talks over Google Hangouts. Got and every once in a while, every once in a while, you throw down the whisk, which is the the ultimate throwdown. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, I just want to oh, see the build man. process for processes for your edible ammunition. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times. Uh, I'm glad you all laughed. I'm too tired to tell if it's funny or not when I say stuff like that. All right. So, um, yeah, so we brought you on to talk about uh, continuous automation and Chef and all of the great stuff that you have going on over there. Um, And just to give uh, uh, kind of by way of introduction, I remember back when Chef was new and it was just setting up infrastructure, but it's gone well beyond that now what you folks do over there with uh, Chef and Inspect and Habitat. And I'm sure I'm missing one or two other things. Um, but do you want to kind of talk about what DevOps has grown into? Because I, I wind up talking to people at Microsoft and, you know, that work in Docker and things like that. And when they talk about DevOps, they're talking about well more now than just infrastructure. So something yeah. I've realized over the past couple of years is people ask you what DevOps is and defining DevOps is like trying to define love. Uh, everyone has a slightly different interpretation of it depending on who you're asking and depending on the situation. But the the overview I usually give is DevOps is both well, now it's not even it is a cultural movement regarding how we treat each other uh, at work, and technical tools are a big part of that. So there is both the cultural aspect and the tools aspect, but I would argue the tools aspect is solely in in service of the uh, cultural aspect. Uh, what do you think, Nathan? Yeah, I think that I'll just go to the canonical definition that we use internally at Chef, and that is exactly as you said that DevOps is a professional and cultural movement that's focused on how we build and operate high velocity organization and organizations that's born from the experiences of its practitioners. So as Nell mentioned, cultural and professional, like it's all about the people, people first. 
Uh, it's about building and operating high-velocity organizations. So if you take those words build and operate, you can maybe pull those back to dev and ops. But the reality is that if all you focus on are two departments within an organization, you're not going to be able to build a high-velocity organization. So it's really about moving at speed safely. And then finally, that last bit there, it's born from the experience of its practitioners. That That is to say that... At, uh, I love your description there now, love, like trying to define love. Love is love. Love is different for each person, right? DevOps is different in its implementation from one organization to the next. So I think that there are common principles that you'll find across all practitioners of DevOps, things like managing your infrastructure as code and driving towards automation, automating all of the things, things like learning from failure and taking failure as an opportunity to learn. But the way that you know, uh, Facebook practices DevOps is different than the way that GE practices DevOps is different than the way that Etsy practices DevOps or Custom Inc. or whomever. Everyone uh, has slight variations on those fundamental underlying principles. It's funny, you're talking around a lot of the, the same ideas. Um, so I've had the privilege of interviewing Donovan Brown from Microsoft, and his definition is that DevOps is the union of people, process, and products to enable continuous delivery of value to end users. Um, you know, and so that encapsulates all of the things that you've talked about. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's gone beyond automatic infrastructure setup, and it really comes down to uh, who are the people involved and what is the way that we deliver this stuff to, to add the most value. And, and process is a big part of that. So, so how, do, how does Chef think about this then? I mean, you've got all of these different things, you know, the people involved, you've got the processes, um, we need infrastructure to deliver this stuff. We have all of these kind of pieces out here that we've kind of set out here and said, they all work together and that's DevOps and it's cool and it, it's, it's powerful and it's important. But how does, how does Chef help you arrange that and think about it so that you have kind of a cohesive idea with all these things? Yeah, I would say uh, Chef has three main focuses right now. So there, there's other focuses outside of those, but one is infrastructure automation. That's uh, what I call classic chef. That's mm -hmm. when you write your chef recipes in Ruby code and uh, you can define your infrastructure and keep your infrastructure in sync based on that. Uh, the second is compliance automation. Uh, you know, every day, I think now there's a there's another headline about uh, some big org, whether it's government or otherwise, that has been uh, uh, compromised uh, based on a uh, uh, either human error or some sort of lack of oversight. So we have tools, uh, InSpec is one of them, where you can define in code what you want your infrastructure to look like. If you need a certain port closed, you can define that in code and then it will automatically scan your infrastructure to ensure that that port is closed and it is closed on any new infrastructure that comes up. Uh, the third uh, is application automation. And that's uh, where Habitat comes in. That's the main product I'm an engineer on right now. And what that focuses on is the idea of, you know, classically, if you can call infrastructure programming classically, because it's only been around a few decades. Uh, but classically, you would define your infrastructure first, and then you would define your application. At least when I was just getting started, that was uh, considered the best practice. With Habitat, you start with your application, whether that's a Rails application, Node, whatever have you, and you write the application first, then add in just enough automation to make deploying and maintaining that application easy, uh, whether you're deploying it on a bare metal container or virtual machine. So those are what I see as the three big focuses of Chef right now. But Nathan, what do you think? Yeah, those are the those are definitely the three things that we're looking at. And I think that the way that those kind of come together and, and we start to consider the people and the process that are involved. I think if we go back to the, the very fundamentals, it's all about building that organization that can respond to your customers and the needs of your customers very quickly. And so Chef did and does have its history in infrastructure automation, but really the only reason that Chef ever cared about infrastructure was so that we could have enough infrastructure to put applications on top of. Right. And you run infrastructure so that you can run applications and serve the needs of your business. And so really the difference there between, as, as Nell mentioned, like infrastructure as code versus applications as code or application automation, it's really about starting with the application first. We no longer should care about where our applications are running. And that's what Habitat is all about. 
So I've played around with Ansible and AWS CloudFormations, uh, Docker Compose, and a lot of those things. Uh, in y'all's opinion, where do you find where Chef really exceeds uh, versus a lot of these other things? You know, and you know, I run sites on uh, uh, AWS Beanstalk, and it seems like a lot of that kind of infrastructure stuff is kind of taken for me in those scenarios. But then, you know, I self-host a GitLab instance, which uses uh, Chef quite heavily. So they have a Omnibus version, which means I could just do a um, app update, app upgrade, and it automatically downloads and installs a newer GitLab version. And it runs through all of these really cool looking Chef scripts and automatically updates my entire environment without me having to touch anything. So uh, my only real experience with Chef is doing some simple deployments and also seeing what happens with GitLab. But where do you see it really excels where something like Ansible and CloudFormations and other like Docker things just really don't compare? Or is it complementing those? I would say it's complementing them. Uh, you know, people ask me a lot. I think they're looking for me to start a fight uh, saying, you know, what's better, Chef, Ansible, Puppet, whatever have you. And the answer I always give is it depends on your situation. Where Chef works fantastically is at massive scale. Uh, there is overhead to getting started with Chef, and that's something we are actively working on as a company to make it easier because Ansible, frankly, is much easier to get started with right now than Chef is. But Chef works much better at that very, very high scale. Um, in terms of also where it shines is, so some a, a bit of a pet peeve of mine this past year has been people who say, well, I want to put everything in a container. And there are lots of things where you get a lot of benefit of putting it in a container, but not everything. Uh, the best example of that is persistent data. Your persistent data should not be in a Docker container. Uh, so what Chef allows you to do is, uh, and Habitat in particular, have that mixed infrastructure where, say, you're running your application server in containers, and then you're running your uh, database on on uh, an Amazon RDS instance or something like that, it really gives you the power. I, I mean, the trade-off with simplicity often is you have to configure your app in a certain way. Chef is less simple, but it allows a lot of customization and such. Uh, like if you want, uh, AWS Beanstalk is great, but you have to run it on AWS. If for some reason you have a whole bunch of credits on another cloud service, Chef can allow you to transfer your stuff to that other cloud. And Nathan, over to you. Yeah, I think that uh, I first I sympathize with your question. I think that there are as many tools in the DevOps space as there are definitions of that very term DevOps. Like they're just <laughs> everywhere, and it, it's it's hard to sort of understand and separate what what are we going to do? What which tool should I use in which scenario? And I think for me, when I when I think about Chef and where Chef and and our projects really fit in best, it's with this sort of unabashed embracing of this idea of blank as code, infrastructure as code, application automation as code, compliance as code. And we truly are talking about writing code. And, and with that code comes all of both the, you know, the learning curve, the dangers, the pitfalls, but also all of the sort of simplicity, all of the beauty and the scalability of writing things as code. So I think about, you know, we write chef recipes, we put them into a version control system. We have the ability to do uh, static analysis, like linting on those recipes. We run unit tests. We run integration tests. All of that sort of flows through and is sort of part of the, the ethos of using Chef. It's just this embracing code. The other thing that I see a lot of times people get a, a, a little bit hung up on or, or maybe don't consider fully is that when it comes time to using Chef maybe to set up your infrastructure, a good classic example there would be to set up your infrastructure. Oftentimes people think about their infrastructure as I set it up, I set it and I forget it. I set it up and I walk away, I'm done with it. And in that case, like, yes, maybe there are tools that are easier to use than Chef, but Chef really asks you to change the way that you approach your infrastructure or your applications or even your compliance and think about how do we keep them continuously up to date? So when it comes time to my infrastructure, if my policy changes, should I redeploy all of my infrastructure or should I just make a policy update that rolls out across my infrastructure? And the answer to that, you know, sometimes is 
one way and sometimes it's the other. And we have the tools and capabilities to help you with that. The other thing that Nell mentioned early on was InSpec, which is about compliance as code. Now, sometimes, uh, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just speaking from personal experience, when I hear the word compliance, I start to get hives. Uh, and, I start <laughs> to get, and that's because I've, I've worked in environments, I've been responsible for systems where we have to manage compliance, where the auditor comes in and, and everyone knows rule number one when the auditor comes in the building is get the auditor out of the building as fast as possible. Keep them out of the West Wing because that's where the special stuff happens that we don't talk about, but it's, I'm sure it's fine. With, with InSpec, we can really take that idea of compliance as code and turn it into code uh, in, in such a way that it actually just feels like you're writing an integration test. And it feels like that, well, for Ruby Rogue's listeners, because it is. Uh, InSpec is based on RSpec, so it's additional you know, fluff on top of or matchers and so forth on top of uh, RSpec. So you're writing RSpec that will assert the state of your infrastructure. Now, sometimes you can use that or you can absolutely use that for settling the needs of your auditor or answering the questions from your auditor. But you can also use that as part of your just your regular development process. And that's where it comes back to let's embrace this idea of code. Let's take development practices and bring them to folks like system administrators, bring development practices, software development practices to our security teams, to our compliance and audit teams. And that's where Chef really starts to shine. I just wanted to add to that a little bit. Uh, so uh, this past summer, I did an on-site at a defense contractor. I cannot say who it was. Uh, but what I realized the power of InSpec when I noticed, I mean, we all know they work in a very restricted environment and I knew technically that was very challenging. I did not realize how emotionally ringing it is to want to use best practices, to want to use the new things that work better, but still be so restricted that you you just can't. So the nice thing about InSpec or, or other ones is that we can spin up a development environment that has all those compliance compliance uh, requirements set up so that you as the application developer can test your application on something with all those compliance rules set up and know whether it works or not before you get to deploying it to staging or production. Wow. No. You know, I've, I've done work with defense contractors and um, the, the compliance, I mean, I've, I, I do work right now in fintech and we have a lot of compliance, but, but defense is, is, is a whole nother world. And so it's, it's amazing to be able to, to, to express all of that in, in InSpec. Yeah, it, it seems like the, the main areas for that are, yeah, basically, you know, the two areas that you talked about in healthcare. Um, so, but, but yeah, I, I'm thinking about this and I'm listening and we've talked about this at kind of a high level, right? It's, you know, we do compliance and we do infrastructure and we do automation. So it's automated testing and automated deployment and, and all of these different things. But for Joe developer that's working on maybe their own app or they're working in a smaller company and they're looking at all of this stuff and it's just like, you know, I don't have time to learn all of these things. I don't have time to learn chef and then go learn inspec. I mean, you know, maybe it'll save you time on the audit, but like all of the other stuff just seems like it's, you know, there are all these big pieces that it's just another technology I have to learn. So is there an approachable way to just start doing some of these things? And are there easy wins with a lot of this process management so that you can go do the people things and the product things and all the other things that you have to do? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Chuck. And I think that it all comes back to, for me, the, the first question you ask is, why Why are we even doing this, right? So why should I just go pick up an, a tool because I heard about it on Ruby Rogues? Like, sounds like a good new tool. Let me go play with it and learn it. Like, like that's not the reason why. So I think you really have to understand what you're after. And one of the ways, like if we fall back on some of our DevOps principles, one of the ways that you can learn about how to approach this is to look at your last failure. When was the last time you had a production outage and what caused that? And, and what sort of things could you put in place to help you uh, detect or correct that sooner? Uh, and what sort of automation could you put in place that would help along those lines? The other thing that I would say is that, look, when you're just getting started building out your application, do as little as possible to get that application in, into the hands of a customer. If that means deploying it to Heroku or something like that, go and do that. 
it's it's when you start to outgrow a platform like that or when you need to start scaling up and thinking about managing your own infrastructure or thinking about alternate ways to deploy, that's where some of these tools are going to come into play. Gotcha. Are there some things that everybody should be doing at a minimum? I mean, I think maybe automated testing or things like that. I mean, some people don't even do that. I'm not bagging on any of those people, but it seems like there are a few things that are generally accepted best practices that there are tools out there to just get you started with those. I agree on the automated testing, I'd say is the, I don't want to call it the lowest hanging fruit because it's not easy, uh, which which I fully acknowledge. But I think that will give you the most benefits uh, the, uh, in the least amount of time. Uh, I I know everyone I know I've talked about automating testing, including myself, has not realized the value of it until something breaks unexpectedly and you feel that immense pain. Like an example I use sometimes is when I didn't uh, optimize a database query. I didn't know how long it was going to be going to take. So I deployed it and I DDoS myself. Uh, so, <laughs> <Nice>. um, <laughs> there, it's something I don't know of a way yet to see the value without experiencing the pain. But I think if you don't do automated testing, you will experience that pain much sooner than later. So I would say that is the ultimate best practice just to get started uh, and to you know have a consistent environment or a consistent testing environment where you can run your tests and make sure your code is doing what you expect it will do either before you deploy it or when you deploy it. Yeah. My version of your story, by the way, is we fixed, we found a bug, we fixed the bug, and then we basically a couple days later deployed a regression because we didn't have the automated testing to check that the bug was still fixed. And so, you know, I had to go in and tell the CEO of the company, you know, because he's, he's angry. I thought you fixed this. And it was, yeah, we did, but we didn't put a test around it. So when we fixed something else, we broke it again. The, so, yeah. So having yeah. that in place and having that check happen when we fixed it. When it comes to automated testing, I agree that that is a, a very common best practice that we should all do. I don't think it's the first one you should start with. The first one you should start with is a proper version control system. Please, if you are not putting your code into a version control system, <laughs> turn this off, go learn Git, start there, please. Yes, you can thank Nathan later. <laughs> yeah, I agree on that one. Yeah. Uh, I remember, you know, just eight years ago, I had website.old, website.old2, website.old3, and version control makes it so much better. Yeah, it's it's interesting, though. I mean, it's something that we take for granted, but it really is part of the process. It's one of the tools. It It is DevOps. I mean, if you really think about it. And, and I think a lot of people, you know, once we broaden our horizon to say, look, we already do processes. We already manage these systems for the people that work on this stuff. This is just another outgrowth. Where's the next big pain point that we can solve? Where are we spending a ton of time that we could just automate away or think about in a different way and do a little bit differently so that it solves a problem, saves us money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then when it comes to that, like the next step after you've put things in version control and you're ready to start writing some automated tests, this, for me, is where InSpec really starts to shine. So let's just imagine for a minute that you're new on a team and uh, an application has already been deployed into production. And your job now is to you know, maybe help run that application either in the operational environment or you're going to start adding things to that application itself. One question that, you, that will always come up or one thing that everyone always needs is let's say you're deploying that application across multiple servers. It's deployed on, let's say, a dozen different servers. You want to make sure that each of those servers is configured properly. It has the same version of the application. And that consistency is so important. Uh, you can easily write an inspect test that gets executed across all 12 of those that will help you sort of orient and understand where am I? Or am I consistent? I know that you know this version of the application should be deployed everywhere. So let's write up a quick inspect test, execute that across all 12, and sort of orient myself to what is the current state of my infrastructure. And then as you begin automating, you can actually just start writing assertions that say, hey, this is the current state. Let me validate that's the case. And then I can move back into my development environment, write enough automation to get it into that space. So you can really follow sort of a test-driven approach to your infrastructure automation, to your application automation. I was just going to say it's amazing too. I mean, 
you know, you're talking about, you know, different systems that work together or different systems that, you know, all run the same application either way. But it's it's that consistency. I mean, as soon as you add another system to the mix, it complicates things. And so having that that just overall, this is what we care about being checked over and over again. That that makes a lot of sense to me. Because you're yeah. managing the complexity. You don't have to think about it anymore because it's all encoded somewhere. The ultimate uh, cautionary tale around that, I think, is uh, it's some someone some of the listeners may have heard of a company called Knight Capital. Uh, this was a few years ago, and this was a uh, trading company that had several, you know, automatic trading algorithms. And I read the SEC report on this, and I think they had eight servers, and they had a manual deploy process to each in their production environment. So. With, uh, they had to remove some old code and add some new code. So it was a manual process, and they removed the old code from seven of the eight servers, but they missed removing it from the eighth server. And when they deployed the new code, the old code on that eighth server interacted with the new code in such a way that they lost, I think it was $440 million in 45 minutes. Uh, and that was due to their infrastructure being inconsistent. And I, I, I mean, normally it's not that extreme, but that is something I think all of us have experienced at some point is just a little bit of drift in your infrastructure uh, can cause massive failures and outages like that. Wow, I looked them up as you brought them up and I saw the 440 million right as you were getting to the punchline. I thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it took about 45 minutes to erase that company. It's pretty scary. But it's it's interesting too. I mean, you know, it 440 million sounds like a lot, but you know, you make these kinds of mistakes in some of these smaller companies, especially with some of these compliance rules, and it costs you the company. You lose your job, and it's not because they're going to fire you cuz you screwed up. It's cuz the company can't operate anymore cuz they're in trouble. And so, you know, whether it's 440 million dollars or whether it's something that just, you know, takes out the company or something like that. Or even if the stakes aren't that high, I mean, it's still going to cost uh, business, cost money, cost time, and, you know, cause headaches. You know, one of the things um, when Nathan was introducing the idea, the idea of velocity, you know, and, and, and for me, working with infrastructure, it's that fear of what Chuck's saying right now, you know, like, okay, what could go wrong? And then we, we talk about how, maybe in uh, some of these tools, I can, I can test drive my environment. In other words, I can actually feel calm about it. That's the, the reason I guess I, I test drive my code as well, is that I can fix a little thing here, a little thing there, and then I'm going to go to bed at night. I'm going to forget what I did without automated testing. I'm, I'm going to feel that fear. That velocity is not going to build unless I have it test driven and, and safe. Interview Cake makes coding interviews a piece of cake. Here's the problem with most coding interview practice. You work on a problem, bang your head against the wall, give up, and look up the answer. And then you're like, what? How do you even come up with something like that? That's why Interview Cake teaches you step-by-step how to come up with clever algorithms. They break it down into a simple set of patterns that can be applied to any problem. To learn more, check out interviewcake.com slash rubyrogues. Ruby Rogues listeners get 20% off Interview Cake's full online coding interview prep course. To sign up today, go to interviewcake.com slash rubyrogues. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. So one other Isn't thing that, that what your bash history is for? You know, to look back <laughs> at what you did before and then just do it on the other servers? <laughs> that's right. You know, I that, it's, it, it's funny, but that's exactly how I started as a sysadmin. I would, uh, I would log into a machine. I would enter in a command and before I hit the magic key, I would copy that command and paste it into a wiki so that I knew I could do it again. Mm -hmm. And for those of you that aren't aware, the magic key usually says either enter or return or sometimes both on the key itself. But I was I was deathly afraid of making a change that was going to bring down the business and or a change that I wouldn't be able to repeat. Uh, And in fact, at that time, I was I was so busy managing so many systems that I said, listen, I don't have time to automate. I'm too busy. Uh, and luckily, 24 months later, I woke up to this world of automation and became a professional. We all have our, our moments. We write our hello worlds and then we become a professional when we realize that we can actually do this for a living. 
Yeah. And exactly. it really should be, you're too busy not to automate, you know, because it, it takes, you know, yeah, sure. It might take a couple of weeks to get it going the first time. But then, you know what? You never have to worry about it again, unless if you change your architecture, but you know, it's repeatable. And that that's a key thing for me is, you know, repeatable consistency and communication. You know, I think communication plays a separate part of it. But being able to always have the exact same environment spinning up the way I need it to and not having to worry about that. Because like you said, you know, if I had several servers to manage, there's it's not a matter of if I forget or if I mess up one of them. It's when I mess up one of them. So that consistency of automation is a huge, huge help. Well, and even if you're not screwing it up, like even if you remember every step every time and execute perfectly every time on your own, um, th there's a book out there called Procrastinate on Purpose. It's a business book. But uh, he points out that let's say that you have a process that takes you five minutes every time you do it. Um, and it'll take you a half hour to go and show somebody else how to do it, or in this case, automate it, right? So you, you build the system that automates it. Now, um, you only have to do it seven times to make up that 30 minutes, and then after that, all of the other times you do it are free. And so mm -hmm. it, it, it goes beyond just the consistency, which I think is the bigger deal here, but even if you can be 100% consistent, which I don't believe anybody really can, um, you're still going to save time if you automate something that you do often enough. Yeah. And not only that, but even when I do have automation, if it requires third-party dependencies, so let's say if I have the, you know, image magic or something that gets installed uh, as part of my deployment scripts, you know, if I have any kind of third-party dependency, I'll usually have some kind of environment that deploys often that would let me know, hey, my deployment scripts are no longer working because a third-party dependency is failing. You know, maybe someone rage quitted a gym or something that now when I go to deploy next to production, it's going to fail because that's no longer a uh, available repo or gym or library or whatever. So um, I think that's also a um, maybe a less important because it doesn't happen often, but a important bit to consider when you are doing the automations. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, on the subject of dependencies, uh, the project I'm working right on right now with Chef is called Habitat. And one of the main functions of Habitat is it not only packages up your application and everything needed to deploy and maintain it, it also includes all the dependencies. So when you package your application with Habitat, you're creating an artifact that contains all or within that package, the application, everything needed to deploy and run it, and every single dependency kind of frozen in time at the time that artifact was made. And the reason for that is to, to try to uh, you know avoid situations where someone rage quits a gem and yanks it from Ruby Gems, or as we all saw, the famous uh, node package left management pad. what was it shift yeah. left or uh oh no left that's pad. a marketing term left pad uh mm -hmm. thank you <laughs> uh so part of the reason habitat exists is to try and avoid that by including all those dependencies within it so you don't get into that situation where someone rage quits something or not even rage quits something but for some reason that dependency dis third party dependency disappears off the web and it makes it so you're not stuck without that dependency because you have that local that copy of it in your artifact and doing Ruby development, uh, I, I always change my gem file source to a local gem in a box that I have. So mm -hmm. it, it is kind of like a micro version of the habitat. But, you know, for me, that works. So anything I deploy is always referencing that gem in a box. And then, you know, I, I don't have to worry about someone removing or yanking a gem version, which has happened to me in the past, which was the holy initiative for setting up a gem in the box. Yeah, and I think it's it's really important that you kind of separate your build time from your runtime and and those considerations, right? And so even with your own gem in a box, I would argue that you should be vendoring those gems so that the the package that you're testing and the the those versions of those gems are the same as they move through the pipeline and then eventually get out into your production environment. And the beauty of Habitat on top of that is that the way that you manage packaging for Ruby apps is the same way that you manage them for Node apps. It's the same way that you manage them for 
Postgres, for MySQL, for Mongo, for whatever, any, any sort of application, it can all follow this same build, uh, deploy, and manage chain. That's really cool. So one other thing that I wonder about a bit in DevOps is that it, it seems like it's an iterative, iterative process to get to the point where you have a fully fleshed out system that solves uh, enough of your problems to really be valuable um, or, you know, more valuable, I guess. Are, are there specific signals that you can pick up as you work through your process that are going to tell you, okay, now you need this. Now you need to add this. Now you need to solve, you know, in, instead of just saying, I have this pain, where's the tool? You know, it's, okay, we're spending a lot of time now working on solving these problems, so we probably need this type of process in place. I'd say the clearest example is if you have a web application that's deployed to AWS or wherever have you, and you are getting surges in traffic uh, that take your website down. What that is a classic sign of is you need some sort of auto scaling mechanism. Mm -hmm. And AWS makes this really easily. It does this really easily, but other cloud providers do it too. Or even if you're running your own data center, that, that is something there's a lot of tools out there that can help you do. So I'd say that's one of the earliest examples I think people experience of, okay, this is happening. This is causing me pain. It's affecting my business. How do I make this better? Mm -hmm. So I we don't have that problem in the at... Ruby world because Ruby doesn't scale, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a rant for another time. <laughs> <laughs> But when you rewrite it in something else, Habitat will still be there to package it up. So <laughs> very true. Yep, yep. There you go. Uh, yeah, I think it is important to look at, you know, where, not not only where are the pain points, but what are my goals, right? Do I want to move faster? Am I, am I running into challenges where when a new developer joins the team, how long does it take that developer to get up to speed? How long does it take them to get your dev environment configured, how long does it take them to get a code change all the way through to the production environment? You can look at things like efficiency. How frequently are we deploying a change? Uh, and then we find out, not dissimilar to what you mentioned, Chuck, that, oh, that change actually broke something. So how do we fix that? And it's really sort of thinking critically about the needs of your business or the needs of your team, your application, and figuring out where do I need to apply some pressure? Where do I need to bring some better tooling and some better process to play? What do you say to the developers such as myself who absolutely hates any form of DevOps? Um, in my whole career, I've, I've, I've hated it just because I'm not very good at it. And this is before Chef came about. But by the time Chef came about, um, I found Heroku and I've basically been piggybacking on top of Heroku the whole time. However, I'm finding that Heroku is not always the ideal solution, one, because of price and two, because of the technology that I might be using. What advice or what would you say to people like me who are afraid of Chef? afraid of going down that DevOps route because it's, I don't know, there's just some something about it that's scary to me. Well, so the first thing I would do is I would give you a hug. Yay. The next thing I would do is, is maybe reframe the question and say, look, I don't think you hate DevOps. I think you maybe hate managing infrastructure. But I think those are two different things. Um, and I just proved it because I gave you a hug, and that hug was DevOps. So I care about you. Uh, <laughs> that, so that's, that's kind of how I would start that conversation. But then I would, I would really want to you know, help you understand that, listen, you're writing code. You're automating things. You're doing this already. We're just going to solve a different class of problems, perhaps, right? And and you have all of the same tools, all of the same capabilities that you have as you're building Rails apps or as you're building Ruby apps. We want to we want you to have those same capabilities as you start managing your infrastructure. Something I would also add is this is particular to Chef, though it's not just limited to Chef. The community of practitioners we have is outstanding. Uh, whenever someone pings me on Twitter or a private DM on Slack and says, I'm having this problem with Chef, I don't know what to do. Uh, my first uh, response uh, is, "Have you? are you in the Chef community Slack? And that's not because I'm trying to pass off answering that question. I'll answer it as best I can if I can. But the truth is there is more knowledge out 
there than anyone can fit in their own head. And the nice thing about our community is we, and Nathan has been the driver of this for many years, is we do have a culture of respect and a culture of nurturing. And the beauty is that everyone wants you to succeed. There's not nearly as much of that competitive uh, streak of I must prove my knowledge is superior. And in doing that, I miss the point of teaching. Uh, so that in in particular, I, I would say, is something I try to offer as some comfort to people who are just coming to Chef for the first time. I love it. Thank you. And when it comes time to learning Chef, there's a great website called learn.chef.io. There we have a ton of uh, online tutorials where you they're kind of self-paced, self-guided tutorials. You can pick up a, a bunch of stuff and, and learn how to use Chef. The, the important thing, though, is that, look, at Chef, we're really good about teaching you how the fundamentals of Chef work and how to use Chef uh, in a general way. But the best way for you to learn it is to go out there and use it. Use it to solve your own problem. Use it within your own environment, within your own organization, because that's going to be slightly different the way that that gets applied than just you know sitting through some tutorial where we can pretty much guarantee if you follow our instructions, you're going to complete the tutorial. The beauty of the tutorials also is, I think this used to be the case, and I believe it still is the case now, you don't need to have your own VM somewhere in order to do the tutorials. We provide an interactive VM for you within the browser, uh, which uh, I think is a, is a, is a nice way to uh, get started without having to put any upfront cost into creating your own VM on AWS or wherever you'd prefer. Nice. Just looking at this uh, Learn Chef, uh, learn.chef.io, it's nice, too, because it, it also tells you uh, how many modules there are. It tells you how many hours it expects you to take doing it and stuff like that. And so you, you can kind of work through it and you can pick and choose the, the pieces that you want to figure out. Yeah, we try to make it fun. If you want to register, uh, although you don't have to register, but if you do register, we can help you track your progress. You get badges as you complete various modules and so forth. So it's a it's a great way to go and, and learn all about this stuff. And I think we should also point out that there's more than just technology that you can learn there. There are tracks on DevOps, like what does it even mean? What is it good for? Let's let's talk about what that looks like as well. Uh just a little funny aside. So both Nathan and I provided some narration to some of the videos that are on LearnChef.io. And uh, we're both former stage actors. Uh, so the funny thing is, <laughs> one thing we discovered, because we were being directed throughout throughout doing this narration, is uh, stage acting narration doesn't necessarily work well for uh, video narration. So we both learned quite a bit uh, on how to DevOps your acting and narration skills, as well as teaching DevOps. Awesome. Now, I think we've talked around a lot of pieces. Is there anything that we've missed before we go do picks? You know, the only thing I would say is the communication bit, you know, because you get to have the most solid development team and infrastructure automation, automated testing. But if you're not communicating within your team or with the outside, then you might deploy something that is good code, good everything, but it was too soon uh, or the wrong one. Uh, so I've seen, you know, bad stories of that kind of stuff happening. So use Slack, use whatever communication tool your company has for you and just communicate vigilantly with each other. Yeah, when I was just getting started in DevOps, as I probably mentioned, I came from a sysadmin background. So I was more on the operations side. The first and most important thing that I did, and, and frankly, I had the luxury of doing, was I picked up where I sat and I went and I sat with the development teams. Simply by sitting or co-locating yourself with the other team, like you, you can become one team. Uh, we would go to lunch with one another and have conversations about things outside of work. We would discover that actually we're all human. It's not like the the uh, the enemy is on the other side of the wall and why won't they just deploy my code? It works fine on my laptop, right? We got to get to know one another as human beings and understand that we're all here working towards the same goals. And just building that empathy and, and those open lines of communication is so critically important. Uh, it, 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 uh, it, we really can't overstate the value of that. And of course, not everyone is 
fortunate enough or in a work environment where you can merely go and sit next to the person, right? So absolutely, you have to utilize things like Slack. You have to utilize things like Git, right? Using Git and a code repository is a great way to communicate with one another. Um, but think about how do we have communication that's not ticket-based, right? Not, oh, I opened up a ticket, so now I'm just waiting on that joker to respond to the ticket. Let's go and have those human conversations. It's funny because the way you talked about that, it reminds me of some of the scrum training. You know, I'm not a certified scrum master or anything, but some of the scrum training where they tell you, look, uh, besides the developers, you have these other stakeholders that you need to bring in and they need to be part of your team, not just around the team, and they need to be involved in the, the meetings. And so it's interesting. Yeah, you, you know, you, you almost feel like it's overkill to have your, your ops person around, but if they don't understand what you're doing, then you're going to you're going to be fighting that entire process with that communication gap. Absolutely. Well, I love how DevOps and and the way we're talking about it, the communication, everything we're talking about. I mean, we're we're overcoming the boundaries. Um there, Herbert Simon won a Nobel Prize in economics and he talked about um something called uh, bounded rationality. And the idea is that I can do something that makes perfect sense for me. It doesn't make sense to the system as a whole. And so until I have like a human relationship, I go out to lunch with them, I can get on Slack, I can cross these boundaries, then then I'm really not going to have the confidence to scale the way we're talking about. And, and and to me, it seems like what we're really talking about is Chef is is a tool for the win. You know, if I want to scale and make this whole thing work together, then I'm going to overcome boundaries. And so it seems like it's a whole mindset as well as a as a professional thing to do. Absolutely. So is there a trick to getting people on board with DevOps? Because I know that some teams are going to embrace it and other teams are going to fight it. Uh, I, I wish I could write an article that says, get your team on board with DevOps with this one weird trick. And <laughs> there's a picture of a kitten or something like that, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, the key is, I found, is getting someone to experience it. So if you want to sell your ops team on using Chef or using whatever tool you want to do, what I've seen not work and fail in a spectacular fashion is having management come in with an edict saying you will do everything in Chef and not providing any support and training in how to do so. Because someone is not going to see the value of something that's different from what they used to do, even if what they used to do is not quite working, until they personally experience the relief that happens happens from knowing that you can make a change to your infrastructure, have that in code, and if something and know if some or as much as you can, know if something is going to go wrong beforehand because you have it thoroughly tested or you have the ability to spin up a new piece of infrastructure really, really quickly. So I'd say it has to be a personal experience. Uh, in order for someone to remember those positive emotions and carry through with the change of the way they're doing things, even if that change is hard. Yeah. And for me, I think that, you know, if we want to change the culture of an organization, there's one thing that's true. You don't change that culture by talking about how you want to change that culture. You change it by having, you know, culture changes when there are events. And and then if we take that to sort of the next step, how do you get people on board with DevOps? There is a type of event that I can guarantee is common across all of our organizations. And that event is a failure something breaks, likely in production. So to me, the best way to get started with DevOps has always been start by looking at your postmortem process. Make sure that you have the right people in the room when you're hosting postmortems. Make sure that you approach them in a blameless way where you're there to learn about how you can improve the system, how you can improve the tools, and how you can learn from one another. Just a quick a quick story. One of the things that I used to do when I managed uh, operations was we would have postmortems and we would invite anyone who had hands on keyboard during the incident. We realized that that wasn't enough. So we opened it up wider and I invited the developers to our postmortem and the developers sort of pushed back on that and said, listen, things broke in production. That's an operational concern. That's not a developer's concern. So we don't need to come to your meeting. I've pushed and pushed and pushed, eventually got a dev manager to show up for one of these postmortems. He sat quietly in the corner of the room. We had a discussion about what broke. The operations team came up with a great way to prevent this failure from ever happening again. The problem with that great way 
was that it kind of looked like a Rube Goldberg experiment. There was a lot of duct tape. There was a lot of bailing wire. Like it was super <laughs> fragile and it would have definitely prevented that one thing from happening. But if you looked at it sideways, it might have all fallen over and brought down the entire application. At the end of that meeting, the developer said, you know what? I could write one line of code to prevent that from ever happening. So we can go with your crazy Rube Goldberg experiment, or we can go with my one line of code. And of course, we went with the Rube Goldberg, I mean, the one line of code, uh, because that was amazing, right? And the only reason that that happened was because he was in the room at that time for that conversation. And that began, that really began the journey of us understanding and empathizing better with one another. And like I said, you're always going to have failures. It doesn't matter if it's in the development process or it's in the production environment. So think about how you can open up the learnings from those failures, how you can take that uh, and make a true investment in your team. To me, that's how to get started with DevOps. That's awesome. I think we're going to call it there and uh, go into picks. But uh, this has been a terrific conversation um, I guess one thing we'll do before we go to picks is if people want to learn more about this, um, learn.chef.io is the best place to go or are there other places people can go to pick up on this stuff? I think learn.chef.io is the best place to go. All right. And if people want to follow you, either of you on Twitter or GitHub or see what you're working on these days, maybe a blog, uh, what are the best places for those? Uh, for me, I'm on Twitter at, at Nell Shamrell. Uh, you can check out my website, nellshamrell.com or github.com slash nellshamrell to see some of the projects that I'm up to. Uh, I don't keep my DMs open, but feel free to at me at any time on Twitter and I'll open up my DMs and we can have a conversation. And I'm Nathan Harvey just about everywhere. But remember, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it's misspelled. So it's N-A-T-H-E-N. H-A-R-V-E-Y. Uh, my DMs are open. You can reach out to me. You can find me on GitHub, Twitter, what have you. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere available from any device uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Uh, David, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I feel like this one uh, fits our, our conversation today. I, there's a great article by one of my favorite writers on Medium. His name is Zat Rana. And uh, he talks about how Ernest Hemingway became an overnight success with overnight success in quotes. And it, it fits our conversation of what does it take to actually see the whole professional view and put in the time and, and do, what, do what's required. All right, David, what, or sorry, Dave, what are your picks? All the Dave's <laughs> confuse me. Yeah. All right. So I'm taking a break from technology and I am going to pick a power tool thing. So it's been a while. And mine is the Craig pocket jig. It is awesome for making pocket holes in your wood and to secure like two pieces of wood at a 90 degree angle uh, perpendicular to each other. It's amazing. I built my server rack with the Craig jig. And they are a really cool tool. Nice. Eric, what are your picks? I got a couple of them. Uh, the first one is, of course, Operation Code, as we've talked about before. Operation Code is a freaking amazing uh, 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 place where um, 
those veterans who come back get a chance to to learn a new t- uh, technology, learn a new tool to help them reintegrate back into society. And it's it's fantastic. I've talked to several people about this before. I'm a huge fan of it. Uh, you can donate it, donate to them through their Open Collective, um, which is, I think, opencollective.com slash operation code. Um, and the link is on the show notes. The other thing is that I'm I'm excited to announce that Code Sponsor is back um, today. We announced that Code Sponsor is is uh, joining up the uh, Gitcoin team. So from here on out, I get to work full time on Code Sponsor, which I'm super excited about. So nice. There we go. There we go. That, that's good to hear. Yeah. Um. And do you want to just give the the elevator pitch for Code Sponsor for those who have kind of not heard about it for a while? Uh, Code Sponsor is a uh, is a platform that allows open source developers to find funding through ethical advertising. Awesome. All right, I'm going to jump in with a few picks. Um, first of all, uh, I went to CES this last week, and of course. Uh, I came away, I, I got one set of wireless headphones before I went from a vendor. Um, I picked up another set while I was there. And of course, then everybody's asking me, well, how do they compare to the AirPods? And I didn't have a pair. So I, I picked up a pair of AirPods while I was out as well. Um, so I'm still fiddling with the other two pairs uh, before I give any kind of a review on them. But I really like the AirPods. So I'm going to pick them. Um, I have been having some issues with them lately, though. Apparently, when you pull them out of your ear, they're supposed to stop playing, and mine haven't been. And I think uh, I've looked at a few things, and it sounds like I just need to clean off one of the sensors or something. Um, I guess my ears are really dirty. So anyway, um, I, I'm really liking AirPods, so I'm going to pick those. And uh, yeah, that, that's pretty much what I've got this week. Uh, Nathan, what are your picks? Sure. So I think uh, one of the things that I'll mention is uh, the DevOps Days conference series. So if you go to devopsdays.org, you can find that DevOps Days run all around the world, basically all year long. If you're interested in getting more into DevOps, I like you have to go to one of these conferences. The cool thing about them is that they're about half prepared presentations and half open space discussions. So half of the time, any participant that's there can propose a topic and then you'll get a group of like-minded individuals to come together and talk about that topic. Uh, I'm going to be in New York later this week uh, for DevOps Days. I'm a co-organizer for both Baltimore and DC. So those are coming up later in the year. They're basically happening all over the place. The nice thing about them is that it's it's pretty general in terms of DevOps, so you won't dig into a specific technology super deeply. However, if you want to dig into a super techno- uh, technology pretty deeply, I have to also recommend ChefConf. So ChefConf is coming up in May in Chicago, and that's at chefconf.com. You should check that out. And then for my final pick, uh, I'm going to do a little bit more self-promotion and recommend that you come and check out our podcast called The Food Fight Show. It's at foodfightshow.org. Awesome. Nell, what are your picks? All right, I've got two. And the first one is if anyone follows me on Twitter or knows me in general, you probably know I have two beloved pet bunnies. Uh, One of them got very sick this past weekend and Blue Pearl Animal Clinic uh, in Seattle, Washington has been outstanding in monitoring the bunny 24-7, getting her better. I just heard from them this morning and she's destroyed three catheters uh, and is projectile peeing at the vet techs, which means that she's feeling a lot better than when we uh, brought her in when she was very, very sick. So they are doing treating a member of our family as a member of their family. And I really appreciate it and highly recommend if anyone has to go through the difficulty of an emergency with a beloved family pet. Um, My second pick is a movie and that is Darkest Hour which is the story, uh, or well, one of the stories of Winston Churchill. And the nice thing about this one is it highlights that, yes, Winston Churchill was a massively flawed person. 
However, the way he was able to utilize the power of the English language to appeal not just to people's brains, but also to their hearts in the face of literal annihilation or an existential threat to the country of Britain at that time is provides a lesson for anyone who wants to lead a company or whatever you have through difficult times and enact change in a way that lasts. So I highly recommend uh, that film. It's with Gary Oldman, who I think just won a Golden Globe for Best Actor. And I think it will do well at the Oscars. Nice. I've been wanting to see that one. But it's not in every theater, which kind of is frustrating. That is a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping they either extend the amount of uh, theaters it's in or uh, rush it to uh, streaming video, because I think it's an important lesson for anyone to see. Yep. Yeah. I've been watching it to see if it comes to any of the ones in my town. And I've got to drive 20 minutes to go see it. Anyway, um, well, thank you both for coming and uh, for all of your expertise and all the work you do uh, for these tools. I mean, they're they're open source or mostly open source and generally free. And uh, you can also just go try out Chef Server um, on Chef.io and, you know, they have trial accounts and all that stuff. And so, I mean, you you can really get a long way without really dropping a ton of money on this, which is really uh, encouraging for a lot of these processes that you're going to be trying to set up. And so, you know, thanks to both of you and thanks to Chef in general for for making all of that available. It's been great on the show. Thanks. Great. Talk to you all later. All right. See ya. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.